So our topic this morning is in John's Gospel, chapter 9. We've been uh, steadily working through John's Gospel. And uh, we've reached this interesting and very uh, well-known story, I think, of the uh, man that Jesus meets in this, this Gospel. I'd like to just start out by giving you a little bit of a, uh, a update of our recent journeys. We had the privilege of going to Spain uh, just a few weeks ago, and we enjoyed, again, cycling. Enjoyed was a, in quotations because we had to do a lot of hill climbing, and uh, that's, that's a little hard, but the downhills were exciting. So, <laughs> But one day when we were uh, cycling, we, we put a lot into a day, and it was getting... Uh, really too much to do all that we did, plus cycle the distance we had and reach our destination. Um, and so we were late. Uh, that's not unusual for us, but this time we were really late. Uh, so we reached the top of this quite steep climb, a long climb, and uh, you can see the moon is up, but the sun is gone. And uh, that was a little disconcerting because we had to get to that city down there uh, which is our destination, and that's the zoomed-in shot, so the seven or eight kilometers uh, there that they have to go. But the light fades fast in Spain. I guess it does everywhere. But uh, uh, So it's downhill, though. That's a bonus. We don't have to climb. Uh, but it's getting dark. So I had a few little lights on my bicycle. I had a little lamp on the front and one on the back so the cars could see us, and Vicky had the same on hers. I lost the one on my front, but it doesn't matter. Because I had one on my helmet, like a miner's lamp, sort of a headlight. And it's, it's not so bad. It's, it, it can almost see in the dark with it. Uh, so I, but Vicky's was a little, bit, a little bit weak. So we start off down the hill. The, the dusk is helping us. We're still go, going down the hill. We can still see the sides of the road. And we're going pretty well, and uh, it's getting darker and darker. And then... Uh, I'm getting, like, I'm going first because I have the light, right? So I uh, just told Vicky to stay up close to me and we, we can guide ourselves. But, you know, it's going downhill and it's going well, so I'm going too fast, probably. And after a little while, I hear in the distance, help! I wonder what that is, that noise in the, coming from behind, help! <laughs> oh, I think I've gotten too far ahead. And uh, it's kind of scary when you can't see the sides of the road, right? It's uh, like, you pretty much have to stop if you're going around curves and things like that. So, um, okay, uh, we better stay close. The one with the light has to kind of guide the way. So that was a little challenging. We had to go slowly down the hill so that we didn't get too far ahead. So why am I telling you that story? Well, in, in the dark, uh, without a light, we're pretty much lost, right? We just don't know the right way to go. It's kind of feels a bit helpless, you know, like I could go over the edge here and there's lots of edges and uh, it's kind of dangerous to do things like that in the dark. Um, So it's really important to have light. And the story we're talking about this morning is a man, about a man who experiences light coming into his his life. Jesus in John chapter 8 had proclaimed that he was the light of the world. And in John chapter 9, there's a tremendous story and uh, uh, an experience that bears that out in this particular individual's life.
the wrong way. The story takes place in the streets of Jerusalem. Remember, at the end of John chapter 8, Jesus had said, I am, and they picked up stones to stone him. And he slipped away from the temple grounds and got out of their their way, the uh, people that were trying to kill him. So, in in Jerusalem, at that time, this is a model uh, that's outside the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem, and it, you can see the giants at the back. Uh, <laughs> so it's a scale model of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And uh, in, the, in that big building at the top was the temple, and that was the big temple complex. It was huge and uh, quite a dramatic building, one of the wonders of the world at the time. And I've lost my connection here. But anyway, so we'll use this. So here's the entrance to the temple grounds uh, and over here another entrance and the temple up here in the, in, the, in the background. Big, big complex. So Jesus escapes from this temple area and gets down somewhere into the streets of Jerusalem. Now I'm thinking that he's probably in about this area because that would be where people would usually come to beg for money, right? They would sit where people were going up to the temple. And uh, that's where... Jesus meets this man. Now, let's see if this works. There were a lot of people probably at that uh, site, and I should uh, just go on to the next site, which is the temple grounds today, or a couple of years ago now. Now, instead of the temple, there's a mosque where the temple was. This is the wall that you could see, and this was the entrances to the, to the temple grounds. Um, and this wall here is the so-called western wall, where the Jews come to pray. And you can see the number of people there. There were thousands of people that come, and uh, many come every day to, to pray at that spot. And if Jesus is out around here somewhere, maybe, and that man that he meets is out here, He's one of thousands of people there. And, and we don't even know his name. Like, why, why doesn't John fill us in on We never learned the name of the woman at the well. We don't know this man's name. It's kind of interesting that he has these encounters with these people that are just one of the crowd that go nameless. But it makes me think that it could really be any one of us that he's meeting. And it doesn't matter whose name is attached to it. So it's, to me, comforting to know that even in the thousands of people, I didn't know one of those people that day that we were here. Except for my wife and our tour guide, I hadn't met any of those people. But God knows each and every one of them. And he's aware of each and every one's needs in that group and all that group over time, from the years that he was in Jerusalem till now. And that's, that's kind of exciting for me, that God is aware of each one. Now, we hear that Jesus meets this individual and we find out that he's blind. Blind from birth. Sorry for the medical pictures. I can't resist. The blind from birth is a terrible tragedy, right? Like a child that can't see. A couple of, there's many kind of reasons for that, but these are just two. This, this picture illustrates congenital cataracts which are a little bit more treatable these days. 
And this one represents a failure of the eye to form normally. And that can be any part of the eye, from this part of the iris to, to the retina, to the nerves that supply the eye. And the tragedy of blindness from birth means that this person has never experienced light at all, right, if they're totally blind. So some people lose their sight later in life. They at least have had a remembrance of what it was like to see. But this person had never been able to see. As you, uh, as you age, uh, it's important that your eyes work so that your brain develops. Let's see if I can explain that to you. This is a, a oops. This is a, a, a picture of a, the neuroanatomy of the eyes. You didn't know you were coming to a medical school lecture today. But uh, we have what we see out here, goes to our eyes, through the nerves, through the brain structures, and we actually do have eyes in the back of our head because that's where we actually see is our cortex in the back of our brain. Uh, if for any reason the light doesn't get from here to here, this part of the brain doesn't develop normally. So if you don't see when you're young, if you have uncorrected vision or something in one eye, that eye will become what they call lazy and this part of your brain doesn't really develop. So even if you correct that later in life, it still doesn't result in good vision. Now if you had had any sight at all and you were an adult, <coughs> medically the, the case is hopeless, right? There's no way that we could help you with that. In the Bible, blindness is a metaphor for our spiritual condition. We all suffer from spiritual blindness. We're all in the dark. And we were born that way. None of us have ever uh, any reason to say that we could see the truth apart from anything we did ourselves. So we're in the dark. Isaiah put it this way in, in chapter 59 of Isaiah. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way, like men without eyes. And that just, this gentleman's status in life was just that. He didn't have eyes to see, none that worked anyway, and he was blind and groping along in the dark. And spiritually, all of us, suffer from that blindness. And without some sort of intervention, we have no hope of ever being able to experience what it is to see spiritually. So Jesus meets this man. It was no accident that the man was there when Jesus was there. I'm fully convinced that that was part of God's plan because the disciples asked, okay, who sinned here? Whose problem was this? Is it his parents or is, was it this man? Strange question to ask. How can a, someone be born blind and that's the result of their sin? Like, but there was a debate apparently in the, in the uh, 
teachers of the, at that time about whether unborn children could actually sin. Anyway, something to debate about. And of course, it had to be sin. It had to be somebody's fault that this happened. That was just known to be the case. That was expected. But Jesus says, no, it's not. This is not, the, you're asking the wrong question. This man is here today because God's work is to be displayed in him. He has this problem so that God's glory might be manifested. In a sense, that's, that's hopeful to us. We all need that experience and work in God's, of God in our lives. And tragedies and hardships and trials, they may result from bad choices that we make, but there may be other reasons why we experience such a thing. And this man, to no fault of his own and no fault of his parents, was born this way. But he was, had a purpose so that God's glory might be revealed and the works of God might be revealed in him. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he went on to prove it by bringing light to this man's life. Now, the way he did that, doesn't seem a bit odd to you, uh, the, the experience of Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud clay, and smeared it on the eyes of the man blind and said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Why did he, why did he do that? I don't have an answer. Uh, but when I look at the words involved in this uh, story, I see words like light, night, day, world, spit, which makes me think of the mouth, clay, water, work, and life. Those are all words that are found in the creation account. And so back in the early chapters of Genesis, we see God's creative work making light where there was darkness, day and night, where he formed the world, where out of his mouth uh, he breathed into man after making a man out of clay. Um, the, the whole story seems to resonate with me anyway with the creation account. And it's like this man, I showed you the picture <coughs> of his eyes that didn't completely form, maybe that was the problem. It's like this man needed a recreation of his eyes, a re regeneration of his visual process. The whole pathway from his eyes to his brain would need to be fixed. And in a sense, Jesus is using symbols, I think, to say he needs a new life. He needs to be regenerated. He needs to be reborn. Those are familiar words to us. In other words, he needs to experience the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and make him a new person, a new creation. And indeed, that's what Jesus did. So we, we uh, see that Maybe Jesus is sort of painting a picture of his creative work again as he recreates the life in this man. It's possible. Sounds good to me anyway. So here is our, ma- our model of J- Jerusalem again. We have, this is the pool of Siloam where it was. This was the wall of the temple up, up here. So somewhere I'm, I'm pretending anyway, making out that Jesus met the man somewhere up here and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he had to make his way down through the streets of Jerusalem. He's probably done it lots of times, but it still wouldn't be easy for a guy blind to, to get down all this way and then wash in this pool of Siloam. Jesus 
just as an aside, we, we made that walk kind of when we were in Israel, but we did it in a little different way. So this is the temple up here. This is the pool of Siloam down here. There is a tunnel that runs underneath the old city of Jerusalem like that. And that's where the water for the pool of Siloam comes from, from this spring of Gihon here. And it's thought that at the time of Hezekiah, they didn't want the water escaping out here so that the enemies that were besieging the Assyrians could get the water. So he built a tunnel, diverted the water under the city and put it in this pool and then the collecting pond here and retained it so it didn't get outside the city so the besieging armies would have no water to drink, but the city would have a water supply if they were besieged. Pretty, pretty impressive. This is that tunnel. It's, uh, it goes for... 500 plus meters through the rock and quite a feat of engineering if you think about it in 700 BC um, doing that sort of thing. And just to show you that uh, we actually can walk in it, <laughs> here's the guy that's got a little light in his hand and uh, the flash revealed that he was walking. But without that little light, it's really dark down there. Anyway, that's, uh, that's my trousers, I think, or pants, uh, because we were walking knee-deep in water, so uh, we had our swimsuits on. It empties into this pool, which is the Byzantine pool of Siloam, which isn't the same one that Jesus was at. It's the later version after Jerusalem was destroyed, but that's where the water ends up today. But when the city was digging a new uh, sewer system, they uncovered stones down here and steps that actually are not far from that other pool, that indeed are very, very likely to be the actual ruins of the Pool of Siloam. And uh, it's kind of interesting to go there and visit that. The, keeps jumping. the uh, artists down in that working area have depicted this as the wall on, the, on a wall of uh, rock right now, but uh, that would be what the pool looked like where they're digging away and excavating it. So it's kind of interesting to see that. Those are just a bit of an aside. Now, the uh, pool, again, down here on, the, on this little map of Jerusalem and the temple up here. You can see this is a modern map because there's a mosque there. But now, the man had to go from this pool back. It says he returned home seeing. And uh, he got questioned on the way. Is this the same guy? Is he the one that was blind that we saw begging on the streets and he said yeah it's him and I said no it can't be him yeah it's him no it can't be him but then he says yeah it's me I am the one I'm the one that was born blind the town was sort of buzzing by this time how can this be um, they noticed something different about him it wasn't too hard to see what that difference would be in him but I was just wondering for ourselves when we encounter Jesus and he works in our lives what difference does he make? Do people notice? Is there a change in something that, of us that he, they can see that they said, is this the same guy? No, no, it can't be. He was like that before. No, no it's him. Uh, we need to experience some times of change in our lives because the Lord has entered. We shouldn't be the, the same old person we will. We should be a new creation. Something about us should be different and some people should notice that difference, I think. And just a question for you as to what it is in your lives that people might notice that was different from you.
So he had a lot uh, of questions asked of him. He said, how did this happen? Uh, how, did you, how can you see now? Why, why can you see? And uh, he got brought to the Pharisees, and they had a lot of questions for him. They said, who was it that did this, and how did he do it? And they asked him that over and over again a number of times. And they, well, who do you think this person is that, uh, that did this for you? And he had some answers. He didn't really know too much, but he said, I think he's a prophet. Um, and then they asked him again, how did he do it? And he says, you, I keep telling you, do you really want to know? He made clay and uh, sent me to the pool of Siloam and wash, and I, and, and I see. And they said, well, you are a sinner, and, you're, and we better call your parents in to check to make sure you're not giving us a line here, a story. Uh, and they call his parents in, and they ask them questions, and they said, well, ask him. Uh, not quite the supportive role your parents would like you to would like to. You, you would like them to play at this point in time. You'd think they might be a little bit more happy. Maybe John doesn't record all the details, but they were scared of what these Pharisees were uh, able to do in terms of excommunicating them. So they, they didn't tell the story in their words, but they said, yeah, this is our son. He was born blind. So again, they asked the son, well, tell us what happened. And he says, well, I don't know, but one thing I know, once I was blind, but now... I see. And he stuck to that testimony. I mean, that's, that's his testimony at this point in time. And I was thinking, so that's how Jesus in, worked in his life. What do we tell people about what Jesus has done in our life? How do we explain it to them? How do we say, this is what Jesus did? And, and when they ask, well, who is this Jesus? What do we say? Say he's a prophet. We know some more about Jesus now. What do we sh- how do we share that with people? And how do we share it in a way that they listen? Unfortunately, the people that were questioning this guy really didn't want the answers. Uh, they didn't like the answers that they got anyway. And they didn't listen to him. And they actually threw him out of their uh, social fellowship, their, their church, their synagogue. And he didn't, uh, wasn't welcome anymore. So he was mistreated by them. But what do we say, and are we prepared for the, the uh, hard times that we might get when people ask us what it is that we are, how have we experienced Jesus? The question later in the chapter, in the end of the chapter, arose at the last verses, well, who then is blind and who can see? It was a kind of a discussion, of almost a philosophical discussion. Um, Jesus said those who are blind, he came to help so that they could see. But those who say that they see remain blind. It's kind of difficult for us to understand. But in a sense, Jesus is saying if we uh, turn our backs on him, if we don't keep him in view, then we lose the light. We, we are blind without him. And if we turn away from him, we don't really see what we need to see. John wrote a number of uh, letters as well as his gospel and he wrote the book of Revelation and he continues to write on this theme of, of, uh, of light. In John, first, his first letter to First uh, John, he says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Just 
what does that mean to, to walk in the light? Uh, is it possible for us to know Christ and, and not walk in the light? John seems to be writing here to, to his fellow Christians and he's, he's warning them that we need to continue to walk in the light. He goes on to say in the next chapter, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in, are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The, the uh, pattern or the description of a life walking in the light is a walk of love, I think. I think it's the pattern that Jesus gave us. He was willing to sacrifice himself so that we might have that light. He came and gave of himself. He's asking us to walk with him and to love another, others. That's, that's how people will know that we are Christians if we have love for one another. He gave us this commandment in John chapter 13. So we need to be prepared to sacrifice on behalf of others, on behalf of God, and live in a life of love. If we don't live in a life of love, then we're walking in the darkness. If we don't obey that command to love one another, if we you know, speak harshly about others, if we call people fools, Jesus said, you're like killing them, you're like murdering them, and that's hating your brother. So you know, even how we speak about other people is important in showing that we walk in the light. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. And there is nothing in him that makes nothing to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So in our lives, we all need the light that Jesus brings. We all need to be followers of him. We need to keep our eyes focused on him and not turn our backs. When we turn our backs, we become selfish and uh, we... <laughs> Sorry, we got the, we're getting the next thing. I will close anyway with that. We, we don't follow him and we walk in darkness. We follow him, we walk in the light, we live a life of love. I'll ask, uh, since the other projector's up already, I'll ask the team to come up and give their last song. <laughs>